without that mission driving us to make the better decision, we'd just end up like everyone else on the market who's making choices based on how do we make the cheapest thing, the fastest, the quickest. It's an age-old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Morey. It's estimated that 8 million pieces of plastic pollution end up in our oceans every day. 8 million pieces per day. As a result, more than 100,000 marine mammals and turtles and 1 million seabirds are killed by plastic pollution every year. By now, we've all seen the images of the vast tracts of plastic islands in the ocean that amount to ecocide. The problem is so pervasive and persistent that plastic has wound up in our food supply as a result of ocean and animal life consuming our waste and us consuming them. It's a problem the world has largely ignored due to the massive influence of plastic in all areas of manufacturing and consumption. Together with her colleagues, Alexi and Gilmar, a young entrepreneur from New Zealand named Emma Groves, who now makes her home in the United States, founded a company to tackle two small pieces of the plastic puzzle toothbrushes, and drinking straws. Sounds small indeed, right? Let's start with where Emma's journey began and talk toothbrushes. According to studies, one billion toothbrushes are thrown away every year in the United States alone. That's 50 million pounds of waste every year. Suddenly, Emma's idea doesn't sound so small. In this episode, we speak with Emma about her company's Mabel Brush and Hay Straws. Mabel Brush manufactures bamboo toothbrushes that are delivered in sustainable packaging. Hay Straws manufactures drinking straws that are made of, well, hay, wheat to be exact. We talked to Emma about the challenges of launching a sustainable company, how to get scale with new products that challenge conventional wisdom, and even touch on how a children's cartoon influenced the founder's vision for a more sustainable future. Welcome back to the Grow for Good podcast. I'm Jed Morey, CEO and founder of Morey Creative Studios, executive producer of the social justice podcast Newsbeat, and host of Grow for Good. Today, we're addressing how small changes can have a big impact. My guest is Emma Groves, founder of Mabel Brush and chief operating officer of Hay Straws. Emma, thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So, Emma, can you start us off by just describing your companies and your products to our listeners and maybe talk a little bit about how the two companies, Mabel Brush and Hay Straws, are related? Sure. We founded Mabel Brush back in 2016. And Mabel Brush, that was our, our first company, The Baby, and we made self-standing bamboo toothbrushes. So I think our slogan at the time was change your brush, change the world. So that was kind of our our mission starting out um, with the idea that obviously making a small change in your daily routine, like switching a plastic toothbrush to a bamboo one that's compostable can lead to, to positive change. So I have two other co-founders, um, Alexi and Gilmar. Uh, we're all friends and Sort of early 2016, my co-founder, Alexi, had shown us this bamboo toothbrush he designed. Gilmar and I were from San Francisco. We were like, wow, this is pretty cool. I've never seen a bamboo toothbrush. Like, why hasn't someone, you know, thought of this before? Of course, they did exist. It just wasn't really in the mainstream and not something we were seeing 
in the toothbrush aisle. So we sort of, we brought back a couple of prototypes to San Francisco and kind of sat on the idea for a while. And eventually through some conversations, we decided like, this is actually a pretty cool idea. Why don't we give it a shot? Just test it out, order a small amount and kind of see what happens. So that's what we did. We started with a, you know, a 10,000 unit purchase order and ordered those and literally got a U-Haul truck and picked them up and took them to a, you know, a storage facility and, and started selling kind of online. So I think we hit the market around the time when Instagram was quite young and influencers were pretty genuine. You could make a post and these things would kind of go viral a lot easier. So that sort of jump started us into the sustainability world and got us tapped in. I love those gritty origin stories where it's, it's <laughs> nothing is ever as uh, as cinematic as people think it is. You know, you're talking about like get the SKUs ready, get the truck, get the warehouse, and then just ground and pound and start selling. It's that's always the way. Yeah, not to mention like you know nothing, right? So you're teaching yourself <laughs> right. like every day. You're like googling how to build a website, how to <laughs> that's the best. You know what is SEO? So. It's kind of fun when like looking back at the journey that feels like a long time ago, but you definitely start from the basics and build up. And so, yeah, we, yeah, we started with this idea that we'd have a bamboo subscription toothbrush company sell direct online. We didn't really focus on wholesale in the beginning. And then early 2017, we took a trip to Ningbo, China, which is where our brushes are produced, you know, just to, check up on the manufacturing, vet it ourselves, make sure that, you know, ethically it was being produced, like where's the bamboo coming from? Like, you know, are we making it the best way possible? Tweaking it, you know, fixing little things that we wanted to improve on. And during that trip, we actually discovered these straws made from straw. And again, that was kind of like a light bulb moment where we were like, wait, straws, like drinking straws made from real straw. Like, again, why hasn't this, you know, been thought of or why are we still using plastic straws? And so we took a small amount back with us in the suitcase. And, you know, again, it's like we sort of sat on it for a month or two and thought about who's going to buy these straws made from straw and, like, how do we even kickstart that? Uh, We're chatting to a friend of ours who's in the restaurant industry and he tells us about how he's, restaurants going strawless and because plastic straws are bad which of course we knew and this was the first time we'd really thought about a b2b side of selling straws made from straw so he's like i'll take your prototypes like i'll test them out so that's what we did and and the customer feedback was great he's a local restaurant down in in palo alto near tootsie's barn there so tested them out the feedback was great and at that same kind of timing was right about when we were seeing a lot of lonely whale and and ocean groups like that you know really targeting plastic straws as the gateway plastic right and like getting people to realize that the single-use item is around for hundreds of years and why are we still using them and we kind of rode that wave of momentum. We basically hit the ground running with hay straws, got a small purchase order together, got it shipped, pre-sold it, kept producing more and more each month, 
to keep up with the demand because we were really seeing a pretty drastic shift, mainly from from the restaurant bar industry. Like that's ninety five percent of our business, and that just really took off. Like people were ready for change, customers were demanding it, and it was kind of a, a simple solution to a pretty big problem. I want to talk to you a little bit about how you structured the two companies, but uh, before we do that, just go into your background a little bit, because it wasn't just that you happened into creating a sustainable product. You actually have a a degree in textiles from university. Isn't that right? Yeah, my background's in um, textile design, and I've kind of worked in and out of interior design, furniture design, and furniture production. So my backgrounds or my strengths come in the design um, manufacturing background, but I guess the sustainability part really comes from my upbringing. Um, my father's a park service ranger back in New Zealand. And so we grew up doing beach cleans, composting, like fostering birds with broken wings, you know. So my passion for sustainability definitely started back when I was a kid. And obviously at the time was like, why are we picking up trash and stuff? But those sort of ideas of like thinking about where your your trash is going and it ending up in nature and seeing how that directly affects animals and wildlife. It's always been in the back of my mind, like going through life, right? It's like, oh, eventually I want to, I'd love to start a company. I'd love to do good, right? But it always seems like such a far off thing. And so that's when, when we found like Mabel, that bamboo toothbrush. For me, it was like, oh, this is an awesome design product and it's got the sustainability aspect where it can do good. So for me, that was a fusion of my passions altogether. So in addition to demystifying the origin of your accent for our American (laughs) audience, you also hit my next question, which was where you grew up and whether there was more of a, maybe there was more of a heightened awareness or consciousness about recycling in the environment. And it sounds like your, your degree, but also your upbringing was sort of prologue for eventually what would become the lines that you represent. It's almost like it was, it could be no other way. You were destined to be doing this. <laughs> well, I hope so. Yeah. So I grew up in a very small town called Picton in New Zealand, which is at the top of the South Island. And it's kind of known in New Zealand as the ferry crosses from like the North to the South Island and Picton is where it ports. It's very small, maybe, I don't know, 8,000 people. I mean, it's, pretty tiny. <laughs> so grew up around the ocean. It's a picturesque little spot. All my friends were, you know, we got into like sailing and, and the outdoors. So we were on the water a lot as teenagers, did a lot of hiking and things. I guess the community itself, like New Zealand is known, they're known for their ingenuity and making do with what they have. So that's very much, I think, in the mentality of like Dylan's small rural areas you know farmers don't have access to like the big stores and so they just you know fashion stuff out of what they have and I think that trickles down to most New Zealanders kind of have that way of thinking it's like well let's take what I've got and and kind of work with it so the town itself I mean just a a small town but I think you know it was heavily influenced by tourism which of course relies on the beautiful nature around it so I think a lot of the the businesses I worked up growing up as a teenager were 
you know, they actually did have some of those core values, like kayaking companies, hiking companies. So that was like part of their mission as well to to look after the areas they were walking or trekking through. I was born in Canada. My entire family's from Canada. Most of them still live there. Uh-huh. And uh, the first time that I heard about New Zealand growing up was uh, my dad had a, a very close family friend that went on a, a quick jaunt, just a trip. Their mission in life was to to see New Zealand. And I said, did they like it? He goes, I have no idea. She never came back. <laughs> it was just one of those things. It was like, uh, okay, bye. I, I live here now and I'm never returning. It's the most perfect place on earth. Do you miss it? Yeah, I mean, especially I think with everything going on now, if you look at New Zealand, it's like, oh, they had like 12 cases of coronavirus and shut it down pretty Yeah, sorry quick, about that. We're, we're not handling this well. Also, good leadership, I've got to say, you know, <laughs> plays a part. Is it a president or prime minister? Uh, prime minister. Prime minister, because she's made uh, headlines all over the world for just being a boss. Like the, yeah. the, she's being held up as one of the best leaders in the world and really getting her due right now. Yes. I mean, that makes me like proud to be a New Zealander. And yes, I do miss it. I mean, it's gorgeous. Anyone that goes there, it's like postcard moment almost everywhere, just because the population's so small. There's only 4 million people. So compared to when you go to like all these amazing sites in the US and there are like stunning places here too, but you might be one of thousands of people, but in New Zealand, you might be on that beach alone. And I think that's really where it strikes people's hearts is kind of, you know, just that isolation that you can be in a beautiful place without anyone else around. It's pretty special. Well, the next time you go back, if you see a rogue Canadian, uh, just uh, tell them that uh, everyone was asking about her. (laughs) A foundational aspect of your companies is that the materials you use are also ethically sourced. And obviously, you don't even use plastic in your packaging. And it's all in service of reducing plastic waste in landfills. In fact, that's the stated mission of your companies. So can you talk a little bit about starting a company with the mission in mind first? And then almost discovering the most suitable business model to support the mission. And maybe answer as though you were advising other young entrepreneurs that want to start something. Is it risky to start something with the mission in mind? Or is it for you like there could be no other way? I think the mission guides you, right? It becomes sort of that point that you pull yourself back to as you make decisions. So for us, it was always like, how do we produce a product? you know, where we're looking at the full life cycle of it from the actual materials that make it through to the packaging and then how that's disposed of. With that in mind, it it really focuses us when we're making decisions, the hard decisions, like it's cheaper to package in plastic or it's cheaper to package this way or produce this way, right? Without that mission driving us to like make the better decision, we'd just end up like everyone else on the market who's making choices based on how do we make the cheapest thing, the fastest, the quickest. I think having a strong mission, whether it's sustainability or ethics or women's rights, civil rights, whatever it is, that really actually strengthens, I think, your products and why people choose to buy them. Um, And I think that can be used to really connect with the customer versus if you don't really have any core mission or 
any reason for doing what you're doing. And I think it's like harder for the end customer too to get behind because they're really buying the product, not just because they like the product. Of course, they're buying it, you know, through looks or or whatever. But oftentimes it's actually the mission that catches them. Buying a Mabel brush, you know, makes them feel empowered that they're like creating change themselves, right? Because that's that's at the core of our mission is to enable people to do that. Whereas if you're buying, I don't know, a plastic toothbrush, you're just kind of buying a toothbrush, right? There's nothing, there's no thought beyond just the brush and what it does. So keeping on the theme of advising aspiring entrepreneurs at any stage, what are some of the pitfalls of undertaking a mission-driven business? Yeah, I mean, at some point in time, you have to choose mission over profitability. I think ultimately that's the... Yeah. The thing like your investors or your bank or whatever, they're always going to push for like the financial success or the money aspect. And I think, you know, holding true to your values often can mean a short term loss, but a long term gains. Mm-hmm. I think that's the number one thing you can compromise. Did you consider organizing as a B Corp? We would like to. Yeah, that's something we're looking into doing. I have this sense, uh, and it's probably something we'll explore on the show, but I have the sense that it's more difficult to do after the fact rather than organizing that way from the ground up. But the number of B Corp businesses seems to be exploding and expanding. In my mind, it just sort of sets the table with your investors and with the bankers that we do this for a different reason. And yes, we will be profitable. This is a sustainable business, but we're doing it for a different reason, which I think is... um, might even help in in that journey when you're trying to explain to people exactly why you do and make the decisions that you make because otherwise it feels like as you say you constantly have to reinforce the mission ahead of the day-to-day financials but these decisions are endless i mean i imagine that you're constantly facing some sort of pressure to take a, a shortcut whether it's through distribution or it's through the packaging aspect of the business and and that has to be challenging yeah, definitely. And I mean, I'd agree with you on what you said about B Corp. I think they kind of give you almost like a guideline of here's the expectation. And so when you're forming the company right from the get-go, that's in your brain sort of as a guideline. And yeah, it's it's definitely challenging. I mean, you know, it sort of pulls on the heartstrings a lot at those moments where you've got to, you obviously need to make sales to continue to grow your business, right? So there's that. But then You know, it's like, how much are you willing to compromise your mission to do that and say no when you need to say no? Or, yeah, so there's definitely been times, but that's where it's good to have three heads making decisions because I think we all have different viewpoints. And I think that gives us an ability to look at it from all sides as well. So, not to delve too much into personal business business, but before we talk about the actual products themselves a little bit more, you mentioned something before about uh, how quickly you were able to go to market because you sort of had a champion with Hay Straws with a, a local restaurateur. Has Hay sort of become the tail wagging the dog in the two businesses that you have? Did you find more immediate and scalable success there than so far with the toothbrushes or are they both equally as scalable and on equal footing? At some point, Hay Straws definitely took the lead. Just a combination of timing the right product, right time. 
And we'd also made a lot of mistakes with Mabel. So we often refer to that as like our learning curve where we learned a lot of lessons there. And took Ooh, tell us, tell us, <laughs> give me one of the big ones. Give me one of the juicy ones. Um, yeah, I mean, at one point we had early on in the business had a, a purchase order that was completely produced the wrong way. We couldn't sell it. It set us back like three or four months of momentum that we had built. Um, so that was a early on, that was a big one. And then I think pricing and who we were marketing to in the beginning for the brushes, we were just like, we're going to be like Dollar Shave Club. And you know, that was <laughs> a mistake to think that it was going to be that easy. Like you just ship people a toothbrush every three months. Um, people don't appreciate what a unicorn that company is. <laughs> We sort of like hadn't taken the fact that wholesale would be a big component of the business and leaving that aspect out. I think early on, we lost a lot of traction for our toothbrush company because, you know, we were so focused on on direct to consumer and, and marketing to them. And when we did hay straws, it was a total shift where we realized from the beginning that wholesale or B2B was going to be the way to do business there. So. Yeah, we learned a lot of lessons early in the first like couple of years of Mabel and then applied those to hay straws as we grew. So at least we sort of had a foundation of like how to set things up and then we were able to quickly move with the momentum as the straws grew. And are they organized under the same company or two distinct companies? Two brands, but they're both under the Mabel Brush LLC. Got it. Okay. So let's get deeper into the actual products themselves. You have two very distinct ingredients for the products. Hay straws, as you said, um, actually made from hay mm -hmm. and using bamboo for the toothbrushes. Can you talk a little bit about how we have an abundance of these materials that are primed for manufacturing and how their rapid harvest growth makes them such a reasonable solution that we just have to kind of shift our mindset and try to pour more resources into into developing those manufacturing resources instead of relying on things like plastics? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with bamboo. So bamboo is one of the fastest growing woods, or it's technically a grass in the world. Usually that'll reach maturity between two to five years, depending on, on the bamboo type. It's actually growing pesticide-free, like there's no chemicals used to grow bamboo. So I know a lot of people expect it to be certified as organic bamboo, but actually basically all bamboo growing is organic. It's naturally antibacterial, and so it, it doesn't get funguses and things like that. So it actually makes it a great material for a lot of things, and it's pretty versatile. If you compare that to, say, like, traditional wooden products, you're looking at 20 to 50 years to grow a, a mature tree. And then you've got harvesting, pulping, bleaching, like a bunch of chemicals are added to actually get it to like a paper form or a wood form. So it, it's obviously not sustainable with deforestation. Bamboo will, will grow back. You can literally cut it off and it'll reshoot and grow from the same plant. On the, the straw side of things, our hay straws are made from the wheat stem of a wheat plant. The wheat grain is harvested and sold, you know, as a grain. And then we take the lower portion of the stem, we bundle that from the farms, and then it comes to our facility where we cut it, we wash it, 
we put it through a high heat sterilizer, you know, quality control it, package it, um, and ship it to the customer. So the farmer sells off the grain and we're able to pay them for the stem too. And wheat is obviously an annual product that's readily available in almost every country wheat is growing. So it's sort of like a a double win because you're actually using the byproduct of wheat production. Typically the wheat stems after the grain is harvested in a lot of third world countries it can be burnt so that actually contributes to CO2 in the atmosphere or it'll be used for animal feed or bundled into hay which is how we got our name hay straws. So yeah we think that one is even obviously more sustainable because it's an annual growth product and you're already using it in two ways which is pretty cool. So when you said you took that first trip to look with your own eyes at the sourcing, mm-hmm. because part of your mission is to make sure that your products are ethically sourced, what were you looking for? I'm imagining this this novice journey, really, yeah. to, to get in front of the process for the first time instead of just placing an order with an unknown manufacturer. What do you look for and what did you learn along the way? What does ethical sourcing really mean to your company? I think it looks at each component right down to like where it's actually the raw materials being produced. So in our case, when we went on that trip, it was bamboo. So going into the village where it was being harvested, looked like physically walking through, checking who's actually growing it, cutting it, how it's getting from there to our manufacturer. A lot of this stuff you can see with your your eyes, right? Like you're going in, you're looking like a worker's wearing safety equipment, right? What's on the walls of a production facility? You know, do they have fire safety exit plans, lunch breaks? Like asking questions to the manufacturer, how much are the workers getting paid? Checking that against global standards or standards pay rates in the area. What you know, what happens if they're injured during work? You know, just asking the questions to make sure that whatever certificate they're showing you is actually valid, right? That that people are being treated equally and fairly, paid fairly, and working under under the right conditions. And a lot of that you see just with your own eyes. You can't really see that online unless they show you photos, but you don't really know if that's you know, their facility or someone else's facility. So really going in and and kind of looking and asking the questions, you know, making sure there's someone that can translate or that speaks English where you're able to like directly ask the person that's harvesting the bamboo, like, okay, so you cut it and then what happens? And can you show me how you process it? Just to check that, you know, it's all going through the way in your mind that you think it should be done right and then if you see something that doesn't seem right asking questions like why is it done that way like can you show me the ingredients where do you source it from that type of thing which does have its challenges when you're working in foreign languages so then it's taking a photo translating the you know the text that type of thing oh that's i have to say that sounds like it's so much fun but such a challenge at the same time, because, that, you know, the natural outcropping of that is what happens when it's not to your standards and how much influence can you possibly have over that operation? Because I imagine that that must have been in the back of your mind when you first went there. Like, what if we what if we find things that just 
don't sit right with us and are we going to be able to not only have the courage of our conviction to move if we can't achieve the result that we want or how much of our influence are we going to be able to bring to bear these are these are really complicated questions and not a lot of people as you know go to the trouble that you, that you've gone to yeah. to do these things it's kind of a it's i think it's an amazing story yeah and i mean i think the the key there is really finding the right manufacturing partner like the people we've worked with we've worked with them for four years and it's like we've grown together right and we've pushed them to do better like oh hey you're using plastic here can you do that without plastic actually pushing them to find solutions overall you know then their mindset becomes similar to ours where they're constantly looking for a better version or a cleaner way to do something on the hay straw side, we've actually directly partnered with our manufacturer, which has given us a lot of control over how the product's made and the standards. And and we're kind of building that from the ground up of how we want our manufacturing to look because it's a totally new industry that no one's really mechanized before. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Emma Groves and we're, we're going to look back further than Emma probably realizes we're going to look and then we're going to look forward and talk about scale. We'll be right back. Is your company looking to scale? Mori Creative Studios is a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot's platform to achieve sustainable and predictable growth. From video production and inbound content marketing to sales and customer retention strategies, Mori Creative Studios provides comprehensive digital solutions for your company so you can grow for good. Visit moricreative.com to learn more. Welcome back. You're listening to the Grow for Good podcast with Jed Mori of Mori Creative Studios and my guest, Emma Groves, who's the co-founder of Mabel Brush and Hay Straws. Before we go all the way back, let's look forward for a moment. Can you talk to me about how you and your co-founders think about scale do you have conversations internally with an end game of literally overtaking, let's say, the plastic toothbrush market entirely? Are you looking to affect a sea change in the way products are made or just carve out your place in the business world and incrementally do a little bit better? How do you think? I think it's a bit of both. And the two brands kind of focus on slightly different areas. Mabel, the toothbrushes, we tend to look at that as we launch new products that being more of like a reusable direct-to-consumer type brand the hay straws is obviously very volume heavy when you look at you're talking about millions of stores right per month that you're replacing plastic straws so for us i think there are two different kind of growth strategies on the mabel side it's like well someone's using a toothbrush how do we get them to like remove all the plastic from their bathroom routine um, and then when we look at the hay straw side it's looking at how do we actually completely wipe out plastic straws like how do we become the solution for that problem because it just it doesn't need to be there or, or how do we innovate to grow that market worldwide because i think the u.s we've seen big strides but there's a lot of countries that are still using plastic single-use items to the point where the numbers are just kind of crazy. So I think for the straw side of things, for us, it's like how do we become basically, you know, number one straw alternative that is 
the thing we all talk about internally is that, you know, how do we make that happen? How do we become the largest producer and seller of a biodegradable store that's actually made from a natural product and very minimally processed? No, that's the superhero mentality, which is where I want to go next, which is all the way back. Can we talk about Captain Planet for a second? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay, because this this cartoon, which I looked into because uh, you and your co-founders talk about it a bit, it debuted when I was already in college, uh, yeah. to give some age away. So it's one of those childhood things that I missed by like a full generation, but it did make it into your origin story and the founders do talk about it. Can you just give a little synopsis of the show? And even if it's just a, a funny part of the show, talk about how you might have been inspired by it and how you might have grown up actually differently than a lot of us did. Yes. Captain Planet. I mean, the premise is, is it's the saving superhero and he's got some sidekicks. There's, what is it? Earth, wind, fire, water, heart, right? And these are like the core aspects of Captain Planet. And I mean, the tagline is like, Captain Planet. He's our hero, gonna take pollution down to zero. <laughs> I told you they were influenced by Captain Planet. So my co-founder, Gilmar, actually, when we were coming up with the logo for Mabel, it has five dots under it. And Captain Planet, these five elements, earth, wind, fire, heart, you know, they're symbolic of the colors of Captain Planet. So it sort of just made its way in there. But yeah, I guess we just grew up watching that, you know, back in the, must have been the 90s, it's, you know, <laughs> that was kind of one of those shows that we all watched growing up. And I guess that subliminal messaging really did its part. Now tell everybody which superhero you are. Well, I always say I'm fire, just, you know, a fiery redhead. And yeah, <laughs> I'm a fiery person, I guess. I like it. I like it. Feisty. <laughs> We're talking to the fire element of this uh, of this magical crew. You know, the reason I wanted to incorporate that into it is because I feel like, you know, I see it with my own daughters who are teenagers, that they're so much more in tune with the world around them, whether it's, you know, women's empowerment initiatives or social justice or the certainly the environment. They're so much more in tune with the environment than we were growing up. And these are the types of shows and influences that mean something to kids. And I think maybe a lot of people know it, but then we sort of take it for granted of how this stuff sticks. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your Buy, Give, Teach initiative and how that sort of, you're also continuing forward with teaching moments for kids and inspiring them to come further into the movement as you productize in a positive way. You're also inspiring and educating. Can you talk about Buy, Give, Teach? Yeah, sure. I mean, we wanted to do a give back and there's a lot of one-for-one -one models, but we, we kind of wanted to go a little bit further into actually making sure that kids had an understanding of why it was important that you used a bamboo toothbrush, not just like, cool, I got a bamboo toothbrush from this company. <laughs> so the idea behind it is to go into schools and give educational talks on sustainability or sustainable initiative. So sometimes that's literally us going into a classroom. In San Francisco, we work with the sustainability group of all the public schools here. So typically those groups have been like teenage students where they'll study, we'll come in and talk to their class that's doing like 
it'll even be like a business class, right? Where we come in and like the types of questions these kids ask, right? It's, it's pretty amazing, like their thought process. And so they're learning about sustainability in school. And so we kind of come in and become an addition to that, the real life story of how you can actually do good by creating products that are good for the environment. So that's that sort of an, an older age group where they're able to like understand business and they're thinking about careers and sustainability. So we go in and partner with them and give them ideas around that. Um, when we work with younger groups, it's more of your teaching about why plastic is bad and what are some solutions. And most of these kids, they're so smart. They get it straight away. Like it's not like an adult where they're like, you drop the idea of, oh, a reusable versus a one-time thing and it's just immediately they get the connection a lot of them I mean we're in California so they're pretty liberal they, <laughs> a lot of them are somewhat clued into sustainability but we also work with teachers and groups outside of California who are leading sustainable initiatives in their library community or their school and they want to give a talk on sustainability so we'll partner with them and give them toothbrushes that they can give to the students to kind of just get the students thinking beyond just, you know, it's not just about putting your trash in the right bin, but it's also being able to buy products or things like that is also voting for change. And I think putting that idea in their mind early that there are options and like think about your options. You don't have to be rich to afford these things, but it's thinking about what you're using and could you be using a different alternative that's more eco-friendly. If this was a marathon, what mile do you think we're in now with respect to sustainable manufacturing? And you have to do it in miles, not kilometers, because I don't math. I can't do the conversion in my head. What is it? A, a marathon's 50, right? Or am I it's like wrong? 24. You could do baseball, how many innings, you know, how far into sustainable manufacturing are we? Is this something that can truly, truly get the type of scale that you're dreaming of? Are we prepared for that from an infrastructure perspective? I mean, I think we're definitely in or below the first quarter. I think part of the big problem is not actually the product itself making that sustainable. I think packaging is one of the number one offenders when you walk into a supermarket, if you try and buy plastic-free, it's almost impossible and the solutions just aren't there. And it's not that these companies don't want to go there. It's like the technology or, or a lot of the stuff's just not available at the scale that mankind kind of <laughs> requires. Right. You know, I think a lot of brands, you know, the big names, they have sustainability departments and they're looking at how do we reduce our plastic packaging and how do we make our product more sustainable. And I think when it comes to like sourcing the ingredients that go in your trail mix bar, they've done an, a fantastic job, but then it's like it goes in a plastic package and that component's the part that's really hard to solve. So I think if we can solve the food packaging or just the plastic packaging in general, that for me is the big hurdle to overcome. Right. The products themselves, I think companies are well on their way to doing good. Mm. I think it's just that, that final loop, thinking about the full product as it's packaged, as it's put on the shelf and as it's shipped to you, the customer. Can you give people an idea of the sheer, I guess, the sheer volume of plastic 
in a way that they can wrap their minds around not only the benefit for the environment and moving away from plastics, but in terms of the business use case and the opportunity that you see and continue to see in the marketplace. Uh, maybe by giving people the uh, the idea about the plastics in the ocean and some of the marketing tools that you draw upon on your site, you know, the famous turtle example, the straw is just the size of the problem. Because one of the things we try to do is you show people that whenever you see a problem of that size, it means that it's likely that the opportunity is just as big, if not bigger, with respect to fixing that problem. Can you help us wrap our minds around how big this is? Yeah, I mean, I, I think just look at the ocean, right? The ocean is huge. It makes up over 50% of the planet. And right now, scientists have found plastic down into the smallest type of sea life. So mussels, oysters, fish, they all contain microplastics. And the problem with plastics when they get into the ocean is they attract other toxins that are floating around the ocean. And so that gets absorbed into the marine creature. We as humans, most of us, unless you're vegan, eat seafood, right? And eat meats. And actually your health is directly impacted from these things. So as plastic ends up in the ocean, right, we tend to think of it as these big plastic bottle like floating on the ocean but the reality unfortunately is over time plastics with the heat and the salt water they break down into very small pieces of plastic and those pieces of plastics are ingested by marine creatures but also birds there's been a ton of studies done on seabirds where it just shows chicks with stomachs full of plastic dying from starvation. And I know it's all awful to think about, but when you watch one of those videos, it's just, well. And see it. Yeah, and, and, and they have traced it back to humans and what we eat. And so people that think it's not my problem or it doesn't affect me, I mean, you're literally eating it at this point. Like every human has plastic that they've ingested from probably marine life or, or something else or just, you know, eating a piece of packaging, whatever it is. but you know, it's actually in our systems. And the only way to really get rid of it at this point is to to really stop using it and remove it from the environment. And to do that, we need other solutions. Do you have any more products or related businesses on your roadmap that you can discuss, maybe? <laughs> yeah, so for both businesses, we're about to launch a couple of new products. So Mabel, we're launching Zero Waste Dental Floss, bamboo travel cases, cotton swabs for your you know, ears and, and cosmetics that will all be fully biodegradable. So that'll help get the bathroom a bit more plastic free. And then hay straws with what's happened with COVID. There's a lot of takeaway happening right now. And it's like, how do we make sure that we can give our customers who have been very eco up until this point options as they shift their business models? So compostable cutlery sets, things that are going to help aid them in, in maintaining their business as they move through the whole to-go COVID situation. My last question before we depart here is, you know, the premise of the show is, can you do well and do good? That profit and mission aren't mutually exclusive. Now that you're several years into your journey as a business owner and an executive, can you imagine doing this any other way? Do you think you can actually function in a conventional setting anymore that isn't mission-oriented, or is this just who you are now? Yeah, I mean, it's who you are. You like live and breathe it. It becomes part of you. It's 
yeah, those four years have really flown by and, um, yeah, it's definitely changed the way I look at so many things in life. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for being on the show today. I think it's inspiring to do these stories when you talk about doing something that seems so small, just this idea of beginning with the toothbrush, but your mindset and your mentality of that's just my doorway into the bathroom because I'm going to take over the whole thing when I get in there. And the plastic straw, looking at something like that, that was, I, you know, I think regarded in much of the media, sadly, in, in the United States as a little bit of a joke in the beginning, like, really, this is where we're making our stand. And then when you think about the scale and the potential impact of it, I think it's inspiring for our listeners and for anybody to think small doesn't mean that you can't then ultimately scale and scale really well. So this was really valuable for our listeners. And I, I appreciate you. and I appreciate what you're doing and uh, for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, thank you. And it's like those signs you see on Instagram say, it's just 8 million people that said plastic straws don't matter or that toothbrushes don't matter, right? It's like when you think of yourself, it's, we're all a collective. So if we all make a change, then that does create big change. Well, thank you, Emma. Uh, can you tell everybody where to find you, where to find your products? Sure. WW Brush Mabel is for our Mabel brushes and then www.haystraws is for the straw business. So check us out. Right. And that's H-A-Y straws and Mabel is M-A-B-L-E. Is that right? That's correct. And if people want to connect with you directly, can they find you on LinkedIn? Uh, yeah, I guess they can. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Well, thank you, Emma Gross, for being on the show. And as always, we appreciate you tuning in. If you have a suggestion for a guest on the show, and Emma, that goes for you as well, feel free to email us at growforgood at moricreative.com. And if you enjoy the show, like us, rate us, and review us wherever you download podcasts. That's all for today. The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.